So the Bible reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, which is in your leaflets on the screen or on page 788 of the Church Bibles. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Yes. Ah, we are in business. Yay. Yay. Let's pray. Father, as we turn now to your word, we ask that your spirit would be at work, uh, helping us to understand it, but most of all, convincing our hearts of its truth. Uh, and by your Spirit also giving us uh, the strength uh, to do what it is that the Lord Jesus commands. May we live lives uh, that obey and give you honour in all things. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now it's time for confession. Uh, While I was preparing this sermon this week, uh, I can remember an incident where I was sitting on the couch at home doing all the reading that you have to do to prepare a sermon. And I started listing in my brain all the people who I thought it would be really helpful if they were here this morning to hear this. And then I repented. I confessed to my daughter, uh, who smiled wryly. Uh, But the whole issue of judgment is a huge one, isn't it? And it's something that we actually fall into just so naturally. Uh, And it's a really important one as well, given the culture that we live in at the moment. We actually find ourselves in a society that is really, really twitchy about judgment. But I don't believe for a long time we have lived in a society that has been more judgmental than this society. It doesn't know what to think. And because we live in this world, often we cannot know quite what to think about the whole issue of how do we or should we even do it. We're told by this fellow, Frank Ferendi, Uh, You can judge me because I've made a mistake in my slide there. That the therapy culture, that's what he calls us. He calls us a therapy culture. Uh, It maintains, rather than remains, that individual self-esteem must be protected from negative influences such as criticism and judgment. So parents, you know this, don't you? Because you get those reports from the school. Uh, You'd love to actually ring up the teacher and say, now, can you tell me what you really think? I can remember in the good old days uh, when the teacher used to send reports home on me, Cameron is consistently underperforming. Uh, His behaviour is disrespectful and sometimes even silly. Uh, They would give you a mark out of 100 and they would tell your parents that you were 25th out of the class of 26th. One of my kids was astounded that I would be psychologically whole after such an experience. Uh, term after term, year after year. For those of us old enough, we know what this is like, don't we? But we now live in a society that we've got to protect each individual snowflake to make sure that they 
they are perfect in their own little way and we can't expose them to negative influences such as criticism or judgment. We now have a situation where tolerance is the main virtue and intolerance really is the only vice. The only thing that people are prepared to condemn in our culture is people who condemn things other than intolerance. We actually have developed a zero, policy, a zero tolerance policy on intolerance. Do you see the irony in that? Isn't it funny and sad? But it confuses us. In the UK, there's a society whose uh, slogan goes, acceptance without exception. But I can guarantee the one person that they won't accept is the people that they believe do not extend acceptance to others. How do we do it? How do we actually live in a society, how do we actually create a church that actually does this well? Because the problem with a we-tolerate-anything society is that it doesn't actually work. Because there are some things, like people they perceive to be intolerant, that they won't tolerate. And even in the, hey, we need to broaden the legal definitions of marriage... We're now in a situation where, where we're going to draw the line somewhere and that's going to discriminate against the people who are outside that line. And this is the, the fiction, or one of the fictions of the whole debate, is that definitions by definition draw lines and they tell us who is in and who is out. We're just talking about moving the line and discriminating, if you want to use that language, against a different group of people. Okay? It doesn't work. To suspend judgment doesn't work because in the end of the day, what you end up doing is actually not caring about anything because I'm not allowed to have an opinion. I'm not allowed to express an opinion, so I just become a little moral vacuum and I live in my little moral vacuous world. But the other, the other side of things isn't going to work either, is it? To actually have a situation where just everyone's just ripping into each other and judging each other We've all seen how that can go horribly wrong in families, in workplaces, in churches. So is there a better way? Well, Jesus says, yes, there is a better way, and he sets it out for us in today's passage that Am read for us. As per usual, how many points in the sermon? Three? Yes. I've worked hard on these ones. There is one command, there are two reasons, and three actions. Okay. Do you like that? I like that. Yeah, okay, I'm not feeling judged and condemned here. So what's our one command? Our one command obviously is, do not judge. On the surface, you might think that Jesus is jumping on board with our society. That what Jesus is telling us to do here is perfectly aligned in our society. But it's not. And we know it's not, don't we? Because if you read the passage that Anne read for us, the passage that we're looking at this morning, Jesus, at a few points, sounds incredibly judgy, doesn't he? You hypocrites, that's a judgmental phrase, and at verse 6, he talks about dogs and pigs. It's pretty harsh. A little bit later, verse 14, he talks about false prophets. So there's our dogs and pigs, there's our false prophet. All through the New Testament, you have this concept of church discipline. Church discipline makes no sense if you can't decide if someone's crossing a line and needs to be disciplined. So Jesus is not saying, don't have an opinion. 
Jesus is not saying don't ever disagree with people. Don't ever confront people. Jesus is not saying don't exercise judgment. So what is he saying? Well, we know it because we've all experienced it, haven't we? You know that when someone comes to correct you and you feel condemned, you feel belittled, you feel like your value has been diminished, that your identity has been attacked, you know what that feels like, don't you? You've all had that. Whether it's in a family or a workplace or a friend, a colleague, we know what this feels like. Jesus is not speaking about the act of actually forming an opinion. Jesus is uh, he's speaking about an attitude of condemnation, an attitude that attaches the perceived fault to the value or identity of the person. So you see something wrong and you say they are a lesser person because of this. They are a sinner. They are a bigot. They are fill in the dot. We attach that perceived fault with their value and their identity and we condemn them. Jesus is not talking about forming opinions. He's talking about an attitude of heart that puts others down to build you up. That attitude of heart that's expressed in that, that disdain, that kind of flat stare, that arrogant dismissal, that angry, aggressive rebuke. And it doesn't actually have to be expressed. You could be like me, sitting on your couch, making your list. Now, you're judging me now, aren't you? You're thinking, what kind of a pastor is this guy? He's so judgmental. Well, you're so judgmental too. You're doing it to me. Isn't it true? We can do it in our hearts and our heads. We can have this polite smile because we're nice, professional, middle-class white people. We smile. We're very good at doing that. But in our hearts, you know, I can't believe she'd do that. can't believe he said that and he's wearing that shirt again. Goodness, I wish... Oh. <laughs> you know, this is my Port Power shirt, can I say? You know, just look at the next couple of days at the judgment that will be levelled against the crows who fall as one. Um, you know, anyway, why do we do it? Why do we judge? Why does Jesus even need to prohibit this? Because it's so ingrained. It's so ingrained. Why do we do it? Well, it comes down to a deeper, a deeper heart issue. Jesus here is addressing a symptom that all through the Sermon on the Mount, he's actually been speaking about the issue, which is actually in the heart. And what is that issue? That issue is that we all build righteousness. Now, religious term, let me put it in another thing. We all have a touchstone. We all have a thing that we go to to say, I am a worthwhile human being. My life has value and meaning because... And if we build it on anything that we do, inevitably you will end up 
comparing yourself with people. Let me, let me illustrate. Um, if you are a stunningly beautiful person, like me, um, but everyone else in the room, like you, is actually more beautiful than I am, you come out feeling ugly, don't you? You know, you've got this image of yourself, you know, pretty hot stuff here, uh, but 10 other guys walk in and they're six packs, bulging muscles, chiseled looks, you're like, oh man, here I am in all my gorgeous manhood. <laughs> Stop laughing, wife. <laughs> and they make me look like little boys. Take it out of the ridiculous. Some of us build our self-righteousness on our money. And the interesting thing that they've actually done scientific studies and they've asked people, would you prefer to earn $50,000 in a society where the average income is $40,000 or $70,000 in the average income in a society where the average income is eighty? You know what people want to do? They want to be the big people. So they'll have 50 in a society of 40 rather than 70 in a society of 80 because they want to build their image, their worth, based on everyone else. So if you built it on your car and you drove in this morning in your, you know, hotted up Holden and everyone else is driving Lexus and BMWs and Mercedes and Teslas, you know, your fancy Holden looks a little bit ordinary, doesn't it? But if everyone's got, like, really, you know, like, hotted up Camrys or something, <laughs> sorry for the Camry drivers, you know, or really gutsy Holden jazzers, um, you feel pretty good about your hotted up Holden. You see how we do this? But imagine that you're building your righteousness not on your money, not on your good looks, although you can do that and it's stupid because you get old and you get poor, not on your car or your wealth, but on your religious performance. So when the Bible reading comes up and it asks you to turn to the book of Zephaniah, and you just go, and, everyone, and you look at the guy next to you and he's got to go to the, he's got to go to the contents page, <laughs> you know. You know, when, you, when you're as mature as I am, um, you'll know where Zephaniah is. You will, because you've read it at least 400 times. Um, you see how we do it? If we pride ourselves in our performance, we will see the flaws in others. And we see them, we see them in a self-serving way. We see them so we can start thinking of ourselves as I am better than you. Classic example, Luke 18, story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember Jesus' parable? And the Pharisee stands there, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. I do all these great religious things. I'm better than that tax collector over there. It's a classic example. We just do it more subtly. We just do it. If we build our righteousness on that, we will end up condemning others. We will build our own identity, our own worth, by putting others down. And Jesus gives us now 
two reasons why we should not do this. First one, okay, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, it will be, you will be judged and the measure you use will be measured to you. Jesus is saying if you judge, you're going to be judged and the standard you use will be actually the standard that's leveled against you. Okay, now, good Christians, you'll know that Jesus died on the cross and rose again to take God's judgment. So is Jesus threatening us here in an empty way? Is he warning us with consequences that are actually never going to come about? Well, we need to take a little bit of an excursion through the scriptures and look at the whole concept of judgment. The obvious concept of judgment is the final judgment, isn't it? Eternal destinies, heaven or hell. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? No one will stand on their own performance in the final judgment. So the final judgment depends upon your response to God's grace. You can't appeal to your achievements. They don't stand. But your eternal destiny is determined on whether you have put your faith in Christ or not. So that's judgment number one. And can I say, that is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not saying that if you're judgmental, you're going to go to hell. Scary would be, that would be, but it's not. So what is he saying? What other kinds of judgment do we see in Scripture? Well, there's another kind of judgment that is all through Scripture, and it's a judgment of our works. Paul, the apostle, Christian leader, talking to the church in Corinth, Christian church, so a Christian writing to Christians, sells them this in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we all, not just you naughty Corinthians, Paul includes himself. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Why? So that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Go back into chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. There Paul talks about ministry being evaluated. Christian leaders, their work in the name of God being tested. Okay. There is a judgment. It's not just Paul. Jesus, remember those parables. The master going away for a long time, calls his servants in, gives them things to put into use for him. A couple of different versions of this parable, one with lots of servants, one with just three. But what does the master do when he comes back? He calls them to account, doesn't he? What have you done with what I gave you? Now, we can unpack those parables at a different time, but it's clear that Jesus is going to call his people, as well as the nations of the world, to account. We see it quite clearly, both of these judgments side by side in the book of Revelation. So Paul sees a vision of the last judgment, and he sees this, verse 12 of chapter 20. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Okay, note, books were opened in yellow up on the screen. Another book was opened, 
which is the book of life. So what have we got? We've got two separate books, or books on one side, and we have the book of life over here. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So the books over here, you can call them the book of deeds, they are the criteria for judgment. Okay? Each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So everyone is judged according to what they had done, written in the books. That's judgment. But eternal destiny determined by what's actually written in the book of life. How do you get into the book of life? Through faith in Christ, through accepting the gospel. Jesus is saying that we will give an account, that how we live matters, not only though in eternity, but in the here and now. Let me give you a third kind of judgment. Paul speaks to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay, let me give you a bit of background. Corinth was a, would have been an interesting church, I imagine, to be a part of. Uh, if you've read through 1 and 2 Corinthians, uh, there was some amazing stuff happening. There was also a great level of conflict uh, and carnage, really. And one of the things they're doing is that they're abusing the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was a bit more of a meal than what we're going to share a little bit later on. Some people were coming in early, sitting down, digging in, scoffing themselves silly and getting drunk. Other people were turning up and there was nothing left for them. And Paul corrects them. He says, those who eat or drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. What's that judgment look like? That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Paul here is saying their abuses of the Lord's Supper are resulting in judgment which is being seen in circumstances in their life. Falling asleep is not what some of you do in my sermons. Falling asleep is Paul's way of saying dead. Okay? But we, if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined. There is a judgment that is the Lord's loving discipline of his children. We are being disciplined so we will not be finally condemned with the world. God is judging his people to refine us the way that a parent judges, disciplines a child. It's more explicit in uh, Hebrews 12 where the writer says that God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share his holiness no discipline seems pleasant at the time, classic understatement. But painful, later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness in order, and peace for those who have been trained by it. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, if you judge, this is a behavior that is actually incompatible with being part of God's people, and God God will judge you, God will discipline you, God will work in you to remove this trait. And he will do so 
through the circumstances of life as he teaches and disciplines you there, but you will also face an account. So don't do it. Why else? That's the first reason, and I'm aware that uh, I probably need to speed up, otherwise you're going to judge me for being too long. What's the second reason? It's what I call um, the challenge of the blind ophthalmologist. When I was working at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, there was a cardiologist, a heart specialist there, who was unfit, overweight, and smoked. Uh, you'd often see this guy having walked up a couple of flights of stairs, uh, just <sighs> looking like he's about to have a heart attack on the spot. There's only one thing more disturbing than that to me, and that's the idea of an eye surgeon who is actually blind. That is what Jesus is saying. You are like, if you think you can go in and remove the speck, what's he saying? Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank? Why do you think you can operate on their minor defects when you've got something that just blinds you and renders you incapable of actually doing such a task? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? What's Jesus saying? He's saying there is something that is operating in our life that makes it impossible, that unless we deal with that, it makes it impossible for us to actually get the outcome that we say that we desire. You want to remove the speck? Fine. You've got to get rid of the plank. You've got to get rid of the log in your own eye. What's the log? Well, I don't think the log is a bigger version of the sin. You know, I'm going to pick you up for swearing, but I'm swearing all the time. Well, I don't swear. You know, I don't think it's just a bigger version of what you're accusing them of. I'm having a dig at you for being lazy. Well, I'm just a big slob. Well, not necessarily. Because we all know that that doesn't always line up. But what Jesus, I think, here is saying is the log is that attitude of judgmentalism. Let me illustrate it. I'll give you a personal example without any names, and you don't know these people, so don't worry about it. Um, so... You know when you get someone who comes up to you and what they're trying to do is prove themselves right. What they're trying to do is put you in your place. What they're trying to do, and you can see just the anger or the smugness that's there in the relationship. And I think about a situation like that and what it does to me first and foremost is the own sin in my heart reacts with the sin that I see coming at me and it never ends well. You agree? You've seen this. You've seen this. Jesus is actually saying that if you go in with that attitude of condemnation and to build yourself up, to win the argument, to score points, it will, it will, never, it will never produce the outcome you want. Or if it does, it's by a miracle of God's grace as his spirit works in their heart in spite of you, not because of you. You know what that's like. But I had someone recently come up and raise an issue of concern to them with me. They did it gently, lovingly, carefully. We sat down, we talked about it, we came to a better understanding of each other, we both walked away. It was a great time. The difference was astounding. Jesus is saying if we go in 
without having addressed the issue in our own lives, we're actually going to misfire and like the blind ophthalmologist, we'll probably end up ripping the other person's eyes out in the process. Okay, so what do we do? What are our three actions? Let's go quickly. Matthew 5, uh, 7 verse 5. You hypocrite, Jesus says, judgmental Jesus, first take the plank out of your own eye. Jesus says, if you're going to actually be of any use to anyone else in this matter, you actually have to address the issue in your own life first. You need to recognize why, why you want to criticize. You need to actually deal with that self-righteousness. You need to go back to the gospel of grace. You need to go back to the cross and see that the judgment that you deserved, the judgment that would have condemned you as guilty, fell upon the only person who could ever have been acquitted. That the sin that took Christ to the cross was the sin that we gave to him, that he took from us. We need to see that we are, as Paul says, the worst of sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now, who's the worst sinner you know? Now, you're making your list. Now, you repent of your judgmentalism. The worst sinner you know is you. Can I say that? The worst sinner you know is you. Because you know the depths of your own sin. Paul sees that. We should see that. And it should break our hearts. It should shatter our hearts. It should make us see that we don't have a leg to stand on. That if I go in delighting in my own righteousness, that that is a sham. That is a sham. It needs to break our hearts. We need to see that with Paul, we are the worst of sinners. And we need to recognize that those who are in the kingdom are first and foremost those who are poor in spirit. Those who recognize their own need. As we sang in Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. If we get that, how can you condemn someone else? How can you say, I'm better than you, when your sin took Christ to the cross? Yes, theirs did too, but yours did as well. We are sinners saved by grace. Each and every member of the kingdom of heaven is to be poor in spirit. We need to build our identity on the gospel. We need to prayerfully reflect. One way of doing this may be to pick up a passage like 1 Corinthians 13. You know 1 Corinthians 13? Famous love passage. Love is patient. Am I patient? Was I patient with that person? Love is kind. Was that word that I said a kind word? 
Love keeps no record of wrongs. What about the list of your sins that I tally up in my heart? As we measure ourselves and we see our poverty next to the riches of Christ, and we measure ourselves against a passage like 1 Corinthians 13, it's got to lead us to repentance, knowing that His grace is sufficient. And then that lets us, that lets us having addressed the log, the attitude of judgmentalism in our own heart, it lets us do what Jesus then tells us, action number two, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus assumes that you're still going to engage. You're not going to just put it in the too hard basket. That you will do the work in your own life. You will do the work in your own heart. You will go back to the cross. You will remind yourself that you are daily a debtor constrained to grace, as we will sing a little bit later on. That we need to go back to God's grace again and again and again. And then we can remove the speck. But you'll do it. Not out of, oh, I've got this together, let me tell you how it's going to be. You'll do it not in anger to set them right and to right the wrongs because you'll know that Jesus has not done that with you. That the Father has wiped your slate clean. You'll do it gently. You'll do it patiently. You'll do it lovingly. You'll do it humbly. You'll do it prayerfully. Not to win, not to get the thrill of proving yourself right, but maybe even with tears about the sin in your brother or sister and a, a beseeching, a begging God that he would by his spirit use these words, these flawed words, these, these sinful words, perhaps, to bless another. Ephesians 4.29, Paul encourages us not to let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. When I reflect upon encounters I've had, have my words been motivated? Even though they were hard words, even though that they confronted things people didn't want to see, were they motivated by a desire to build them up, not to rip them down? Parents, I want to ask you, how do you talk in front of your kids? Do they hear you talk about others in a way that judges them? Are we teaching judgmentalism to our kids because we are so quick, you know? Self-pity pasta thing. What's for lunch today? Roast pasta. Uh, you know, oh, Cameron, he went long again. The wretched service didn't finish on time. No, 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 no. no sorry, that's me just wallowing in self-pity. I'll get over it. But we do it, don't we? We drive away from a school thing. We do it at home. We come back from the family encounter. <laughs> you know, <laughs> where you've sat down at lunch again and, you know, she said it again. Can I encourage you 
that when you talk about others and they're not there, to do it in a way that if they were there, they would not feel that you were having a cheap shot. By God's grace, they might actually see that your words were just and fair and right and motivated by love to actually bring them to repentance. Only what is helpful for building others up. How do we talk about people? How do we talk to people? Last point. Jesus says, do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under your feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, some people will think that the pearls to pigs and the holy things to dogs, you're talking about evangelism to people who are aggressively hostile. And that could be one interpretation. And Jesus says, look, there's a point where you're not going to win, you're not going to win them over, so therefore there's a point where you just back off, okay? But I don't think that makes sense of the context. I think Jesus is actually saying, because pigs and dogs are both unclean animals, and it was a fairly harsh way of speaking about people who are outside of the community of God's people. And I think Jesus, as he was speaking to his disciples, was cautioning them. He's saying, as you remove the log from your own eye and you attempt to remove the speck from your brothers, your sisters, you will find that there are some people who will not receive that. Because, you know, we don't have uh, the book of life at the front door and we don't check you off as you come in. The community of God's people is always mixed. There are people here this morning, even though I look out and I know you all, there are people here this morning who are probably not Christians. I have to assume that. I preach as if that is the case. And what we see is that that will emerge in people's lives. And I think Jesus here is saying that if you, having done the work in your own heart, lovingly and graciously approach someone about an issue in their own life, and what you get is a vicious response it may be that that person is actually not a Christian. It may be that that person, you're treating them as if they are, but it may be that what they need to do is actually come to put their faith in Christ. And he is cautioning us. He's not telling us, well, let's work out who the pigs and the dogs are. But he's saying, be careful. Be careful. Because this isn't an option where we step back and just do what the world says and says, tolerate anything. We have a king and he calls us to follow. He does so through his grace and his love and his mercy. He gives us his spirit that makes it possible for us to be like he calls us to be. He gives us one another and we benefit and we grow from one another's insights into our lives. Jesus here is saying though, be careful. Don't be afraid, but be careful. There's probably lots more I could say. It's amazing how long you can talk on six verses of Scripture. But I think you'll agree. Jesus has a lot to say to us, and he's continuing to speak. 
as we're going to share together now in the Lord's Supper and in song and in prayer. So let's conclude in prayer now before we move on. Father, we ask. We ask that you would expose the sin in our lives. So easy to build up our own sense of righteousness, so easy to build up our own sense of worth through our achievements and so easy to then end up condemning others. Father, we know that the condemnation we deserve was taken by Christ. By your Spirit, remind us of your grace and mercy that we might grow, we might grow together in the image of Christ, that we might reflect our Master and our King in our lives, in our words. Father, forgive us when we have got this horribly wrong. Protect our brothers and sisters from our own sinful attitudes and actions. And Father, we do, we do pray for the day when Christ returns and sets all things straight. And in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to share around the...